Good morning, all. Um, welcome to Summerhill Church. My name's Steve Frederick. I'm the senior minister here, and we'll spend some time together this morning uh, looking through 1 Timothy chapter 3, or at least most of it. Uh, some of it we'll come back to have a glance at next week uh, as we continue into chapter 4 as well. Uh, on your service sheets, you'll notice on the back side of it where the sermon outline is, uh, there's a QR code at the base of the page. And if there are any questions, things that are raised for you, uh, either from what I say or things that are there in the passage that uh, you'd like to reflect on or ask me to comment on a little bit further, please feel free to scan that and send through any questions. Uh, and if we do have some, we might have a moment to glance at them later on together this morning. Well, it can be humbling to realise just how much the households that we've been a part of end up shaping us, uh, whether that be for better or for worse. Uh, though we often like to imagine we're, own, we're our own people, I think the truth is that the households we belong to now and the households that we perhaps belong to in the past, each of them will shape us, each of them will leave their mark upon us in more ways than we probably are ready to acknowledge or recognise more than we'd like to think and admit. Uh, whether that's been growing up in a religious household, a nuclear family household, a, a share household, whether we've come from a household of a low income or a dual income, a migrant or a musical family or a household, a broken household or a blended household. Whatever kind of households it is that we've grown up in, each will have left their mark upon us in various ways. Uh, as a teenager, I'd roll my eyes at my father in exasperation, each time he asked me to immediately put away anything that I'd just finished using. He couldn't bear to have it just left there to be sorted out at some later time. And I really didn't grasp at all why that had to be so frustrating or irritating until I moved out and moved into my own share flat with a couple of mates and would leave the house regularly each morning having to calm myself down because of the stuff that had been left around. I don't like to admit that had been shaped by my own father's particular tendencies. Our households shape us, whether we like to acknowledge it or not. And it was an uncomfortable question that the Apostle Paul was urging Timothy to give really careful attention to here in chapter 3. This question of who it was that was shaping the character of the churches that were under his care. Whose character were these communities growing into? Whose likeness were they taking on? Now, the bulk of today's passage, we'll look at what qualifies someone to be either an overseer or a deacon in serving in God's household. But actually, I think Paul's most pressing anxiety is that these churches were losing sight of exactly whose household it was that they're actually a part of. I'm going to quickly glance just to the bottom of our passage, the bottom of the reading we had first, and reflect on a few words that Paul speaks there before we go back and look at Paul's words about overseers and deacons. Glance down with me to chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Paul writes, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you, Timothy, with these instructions... So that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. 
I think these words probably are equally reflective of the things that Paul has just said and the things that Paul is about to say in the rest of chapter 4. We'll have a look at those next week. But before the church community is shaped by either us, its members, or its leaders, it should first be shaped and defined by God himself. Now, it might sound like a pretty self-evident observation to make, but sometimes our experience of church life can leave us wondering, Carter, whether or not God isn't perhaps something of an absent parent. You know, the, the kind of parent who gives his name to the church household, the church community, but who's basically just running things from a distance, from head office, more like a franchise than actually a household where the head of the household is present and dwelling amongst those who are members of his household. Sometimes we can imagine that while we are present here in the church community, God himself isn't quite present in the same way. It's easy to forget his presence. It was really helpful at the start of this morning's service to have Heath mention and then to sing in the first song about the holy God who is here dwelling with us. We often overlook that and fail to reflect upon it, even as we get together on Sundays. And that's certainly not how Paul perceives things, as as God being distant. Glance again at verse 15, where Paul describes the Ephesian Christians as the church of the living God. I know the word church, we often think of it just as something like this, but it's a word that's used throughout the Scriptures, and in fact, it's not just used in the New Testament either. It's the same word that's used to describe that first gathering of God's people around the base of Mount Sinai, where God descended in a cloud to speak in in such a way that terrified those who were gathered there to hear Him. Uh, We read about that in our Deuteronomy reading that Gabby brought to us a little earlier this morning. We, We sang, didn't we? Just before we spoke the creed and before I got up here to speak, we asked God to come and speak to us. The church is a gathering of God's people who have gathered together to hear God address them. In fact, whenever the Scriptures speak of God as a living God, it's signalling that God is personally present and actually engaged with His people, speaking and acting to them and amongst them. Church doesn't gather to simply talk about God, as if He were a deceased ancestor, some long distant way back in our family history, an absent relative with a faded photo on the mantelpiece. The church is a heavenly gathering here on earth in which the living God himself speaks to us, both words of judgment as well as words of grace and forgiveness. Uh, This whole complex of ideas is collected together in a little section from Hebrews that I thought I'd read out for you. It's up on the screen. You might like to have a look at it later on. Uh, The verses are are there on your service sheets. Where the writer of Hebrews addresses the Christian gathering community and says, you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church, the gathering of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it 
that you do not refuse him who speaks. The gathering of Jesus, the gathering of the firstborn, gathered together in order to hear God speak. Both words that by themselves might leave us trembling and terrified, as the Israelites were at Mount Sinai, but also better words, words of comfort, words that speak of better things than the blood of Abel that just spoke of our deserving of judgment, words of comfort and assurance that come through Jesus' blood shed for us. Uh, In contrast to the Ephesian church leaders, who simply saw church as a soapbox from which to babble their own meaningless speculations and controversies, the church was supposed to be those who gathered together to hear the living God speak. The church household, Paul says, is the pillar and foundation of the truth, the divinely given architecture within which the truth about God's patience displayed in Jesus is proclaimed and takes concrete expression within the world. Uh, Perhaps you're not familiar with that language of a soapbox being a soapbox. We don't tend to have them anymore. I don't think I've actually ever seen anyone speaking from a soapbox. But the idea is in the past, people would take a, a little box into a public space, put it down, stand up on it to get a bit of elevation and proclaim, have a rant perhaps, Um, We just go to YouTube now, but they'd stand on the soapbox and have a rant publicly about whatever it was that had captured their own hearts, minds, concerns and fascinations. That's not what public speech in the church community is like. We speak of the truth of the living God who has shown his immense patience to us in the Lord Jesus. And it is a permanent message not something that comes and goes on the weekends only, but a truth about Jesus that is proclaimed generation to generation. And Paul's understanding of the church as a household from within which the living God speaks to us will actually directly impact who is qualified to lead the church community. And that's what was read out for us by Gabby in those first 13 verses of chapter 3, which we'll go back and have a glance and a reflect on together now. Now, strikingly, in these verses, very little is actually said about either the proficiencies or the role descriptions of these ordained leaders. Rather, it's almost exclusively their character that is Paul's focus. Uh, We're going to see in some more detail in coming weeks, uh, some more detail about the roles and the responsibilities that these overseers and deacons are to carry out. Uh, They're mentioned a few more times over the course of Paul's letter to Timothy. And actually, in a few weeks' time, we'll spread out and have a look, draw in a whole bunch of other things that the rest of the New Testament has to say about what it is they do and how they interact uh, with the church community, how they lead it. But here... Apart from one or two exceptions, it's almost exclusively their character that's on view. Firstly, the fact that the Christian community is foremost God's household is reflected in the very titles that are given to those who lead it and serve it. Overseers, who are mentioned there in verse 1, and deacons or servants, who were mentioned there in verses 8 and 11. Uh, Have a look with me again, chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer uh, desires a noble task. Uh, And then again down in verse 8, in the same way deacons 
and then it goes on to speak about some characteristics and then in verse 11 in the same way the women I don't think in verse 11 it's just addressing women randomly like they just thought he'd slip in a little reference to them uh, along the way he's there addressing female deacons Uh, both men and women were serving as deacons in the New Testament church Uh, we even know the names of some of them uh, such as Phoebe but they are spoken of as overseers and deacons or those who serve that's what deacons means overseers just wait for the plane as it goes over the top of our heads overseers are not the heads of God's household it's only ever Jesus who is described as the head of the church Overseers and deacons are never to be the focal point nor the heart of the community's unity. They simply oversee and serve the church on behalf of Jesus, who is the sole head, the exclusive source of church identity and unity. And that's quite different in comparison to how some other Christian denominations speak of those who lead them, such as the Church of Rome. Uh, in whom from time to time human church leaders have been spoken of as if they are the head of the church on earth, as if they are Christ on earth for the church. Paul doesn't speak about church leaders as being heads of the church in that kind of way. Both overseers and deacons are also, Paul will say, to be faithful both in marriage and to be able to respectfully manage their own families, their own children. It's mentioned there in verses 2 and 4 for the overseers and down in verse 12 for the deacons. And especially in the case of the overseer, Paul gives some extra comment uh, in the overseer's case, whoever is unfaithful to his wife is surely not someone to whom Jesus would entrust his own bride, the church. Someone who proves unfaithful to their own wife is very unlikely to prove faithful to the precious bride of Christ. These aren't just random moral exhortations that are given here, they're given for a reason. And likewise, the one who can only lead his children by violent force might not they also be likely to dominate church members in the same kind of way? Uh, While it's only the overseer who's spoken of as actually managing God's household, both the overseer and deacons are equally to display this relational capacity in caring for those who are precious to God. Uh, It's often been the case uh, in the past and unfortunately it's still made sometimes, this comment's still made sometimes, that that women are especially equated with being gentle nurturers, men not so much. And there have been church leaders, male church leaders, who've taken that kind of factor on board and acted in exactly that kind of way, as as if gentle nurturing care is something that others can be concerned about and not so much themselves. But Paul is saying in this passage that male overseers are equally to display a gentle care for God's household, tenderly feeding God's household with their teaching in verse 2, rather than hungrily feeding upon God's people. Uh, There, verse 3, speaking especially financially. 
the fact that the Christian community, the church community, is the gathering of the living God, that is that we exist gathered together communally, that too is also to be reflected in the behaviour that's expected of its leaders, those who serve it. I wonder if you notice there in verse 2 that overseers are to be hospitable, better show hospitality. Now, I don't think that's suggesting that you appoint leadership positions on the basis of a bake-off, so you can kind of come out with the, the best pastries or cakes or whatever the case might be and appoint those people as heads. There's certainly a place, let me just say, for those who can bake to be fundamental members of the church community, but we might not choose our whole kind of ordination process on the basis of it. I'd certainly be in a little bit of trouble. I think what Paul is mentioning here is it is to reflect this context in which at the time there were no dedicated church buildings that churches owned, they were to be, overseers were to be those who particularly would make their own homes available for public church gatherings. These overseers were to be those who had a particular capacity for welcoming all believers together, even strangers, believers who weren't known to the local community, for welcoming all those without ever erecting barriers for participation in the church community that simply reflected their own favoritism or partiality. I've got a couple of other verses there on your sheet if you wanted to look up uh, how hospitality is spoken of within the church community at a later time. Perhaps actually Paul even has in mind Jesus' own words about welcoming, especially those believers who might tend to be easily overlooked or dismissed in the world's eyes. Perhaps you're familiar with statements or comments like this on the screen uh, that Jesus himself spoke with some regularity. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water, that's hospitality I can manage. Most of the time I've got ice in the freezer. I can usually manage a cup of water. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Hospitality isn't simply about being able to provide the most grand spread or lavish spread. It's about welcoming those who might otherwise find no place among such a community as a church community. Those who oversee and serve as deacons must also demonstrate by their manner of living an awareness that a holy God lives amongst them. As we sang at the start of the service, it's no no coincidence that we sing about God being a holy God and then we're encouraged by haste to then go and pray a prayer of confession. Who of us, on the basis of our own patterns of living would be confident to come before a holy God without some fear or trepidation if God hadn't promised to show mercy towards us. Well, here, the deacons and the overseers are to show by their manner of living that they are aware that a holy God dwells amongst us. They're to be above reproach, that is, not shaming God by their public behaviour in verse 2 and in verse 7. They're to be self-controlled and temperate in their manner, not aggressive or domineering. They're not to be addicted to much wine in verse 3. They're to be free of pride and conceit in verse 6. 
both overseers and deacons are also to show by their manner of behavior that they take the word of the living God seriously. Because a Christian community is the pillar and foundation of the truth, the home and the household for the truth about Jesus, the overseer, especially we're told, is to be able to teach a skilled teacher there in verse 2. We shouldn't confuse things here. It's not as if the only kind of speaking that should happen in the Christian community is teaching. There'll be all kinds of wonderful teaching that the church, or speaking rather, that the church will benefit from hearing. Words of encouragement and exhortation, words of prophecy and prayer, and all those kinds of speech will be needed. And often there'll be those in the church congregations who can do that kind of speech, perhaps even better than an overseer, someone like me can. However, it is through their teaching, particularly, that the overseer is to concretely express their leadership. And this primary competency required of overseers, this ability to teach, is something that we'll come back to and look in more detail in a few weeks' time, where Paul digs down a little bit more detail uh, about the role of overseers especially. But even so, deacons are equally expected to hold to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience as well. Have a look in verse 9 there. Here speaking about deacons. We read in verse 9, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. While teaching seems especially associated with the office of overseers, the multiplicity of other kinds of public speaking ministry and acts of service that are offered by deacons are no less to be shaped and characterized by a profound grasp of God's truth, of God's own speech. Uh, in the Anglican uh, heritage, uh, it is those who are being baptized and confirmed, they're the ones who would often be prepared for that process of baptism and confirmation through the speaking ministry of the deacons, who help them grasp and understand the deep truths of the faith for themselves. And that was exactly what Lauren did for those candidates of um, uh, confirmation that we had confirmed here just at the end of last year. And now the scriptures don't say a whole lot about the role of deacons. Uh, if there are questions about that, I'd be more than happy to go into it. There isn't as much detail spoken about it. But it's simply not just only kind of practical matters of serving that deacons seem to be involved in in the church community. But it's not just a deep knowledge about God and God's truths that matters for these people. It's equally important is their manner of speaking that truth. They are not to be quarrelsome in verse 3. That is, at the drop of a hat, loving any opportunity to have a debate and a good old rumble over contentious matters or issues. They're not to be malicious in their speech or harsh, but temperate, as referenced there in verse 11 for the female deacons. In contrast to those Ephesian church leaders, the wannabe spiritual influencers who imagined that church was a little more than a soapbox from which to speak their own meaningless speculations and controversies, the church instead gathers together to personally hear the living God himself speak. Just as we prayed God would do 
when we sang that song before the readings. And those who were appointed to oversee and serve God's household were to do so in a manner that graciously reflected the character of the one who is the head of the household of the church, the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Now, there were just two final phrases that I didn't touch on on our way through this morning's passage that I thought it might be worth reflecting on and just clarifying momentarily before we wind up for today. Uh, One of those phrases was speaking directly about the office of the overseer, And the other phrase was describing the office of the deacon, one at the start and one at the end of the passage. Uh, Have a look back with me to our opening verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, this little phrase, a noble task, might, might, it, might make it sound as if it was in a uniquely elevated mode of serving amongst God's people. And there are indeed some things that make an overseer's ministry distinct from all the many other and varied modes of service that need to occur in God's household. We'll think about that in a few weeks. But this little phrase, though, noble task, is really just a good work. That's what it says, anyone who desires to be an overseer desires a good work. It's the same term that's used to describe an elderly widow's service in chapter 5, also a good work. You might recall that in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions that those members of the body that are lacking particular earthly honour, to them God will give more honour. We need to be careful here that we don't elevate the office of an overseer as if it's the only genuine good work that might be done, that it's somehow especially more to be honoured than other forms of service. There are things that are distinct about it that we'll see in coming weeks, but there are many other good works to perform amongst the household of God's people than just that that's performed by the overseer. And then again, the last little verse that I wanted to touch on or reflect on was there at the end of the words to the deacons uh, in chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. We read there that those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. What's being spoken of there, this great assurance in the faith of Christ Jesus. I don't think it's suggesting that those who serve as deacons somehow earn a greater assurance of God's acceptance of them, a greater assurance of their salvation in some sense. No, all God's people have the same confidence of God's mercy towards them. I think this phrase, a great assurance, uh, which is often just translated as great boldness, He's referring to a deepening boldness and confidence in God's work amongst his people. That the the message of faith that we trust can do great and glorious things when it's set to work amongst those who are his household. That likely will, being serving as a deacon, that serving God's people in the kinds of ways that have been mentioned will likely strengthen more and more 
your confidence that God can do astounding things as he works in the lives of those around about you. And that's certainly been my experience, that my boldness and confidence in God has seen, has seen remarkable growth because of the life of faith that's been expressed in those around about me that I've noticed only through having had this opportunity to serve and minister to others around about me. As Paul continues through this letter, as he gives these further instructions about how the church household is to organise and structure its life, there are going to be many details, many instructions, many commands, many urgings, but Paul's primary concern is we remember that it's a household of the living God, the one who speaks to his people and transforms us through his speech. And Paul's primary concern is in the manner of each of our lives, we might not contradict or undermine that by the way in which we treat each other. How about we pray for ourselves as God's household, that we will be increasingly aware of the one whose household it is, the one who lives and speaks amongst us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and thank you that this church community is not a community that you have left us to establish and to sustain by ourselves, by our own wisdom, by our own insight, by our own strivings and efforts, but that instead, Father, it's your household, that you have not left us as orphans in the way idols do, but that you're a living God who dwells here with us by your Spirit. Father, we ask that we would be sensitive every time we gather together with one another, that you are a holy God and you are amongst us, that it's your speech that matters in your household, and that those who serve and oversee the ministries here and all of us as we listen to and speak to one another might be conscious of that, seeking to hear your voice at work in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you do have any questions uh, or reflections on those things, please feel free to send them through uh, as we stand to sing again.